0: Welcome to Hoof on the Till, our weekly look at all things racing. Helen Thomas and Max Preston are with you. And Max, I think we can say we've officially arrived in spring 2023 because it's Caulfield Cup Day on Saturday.
1: Yes, and the issues are Gold Trip, will he run and how will he run? By oh, G, was sensational last start. We've also got the uh, the follow up on a highly successful Everest Day, but just what did the World Tote do for Australian racing? Rob Waterhouse is going to give us an insight onto that. And then we have Graham Begg chasing the Caulfield Melbourne Cup double, attempting to win the Melbourne Cup with a, an eight-year-old mare who was a croc at the same time last year.
0: Oh, brave words, Max, describing Lunafilia that way. But first up, let's go to that issue of Gold Trip. Is he in? At the moment, he is in the Caulfield Cup. Will he start? Jamie Lovett joins us now from Australian Bloodstock. Yeah, morning, guys. Now, it's sort of like waiting for Taylor Swift tickets. It's been like that, waiting to see whether Goldshoup is in or out of the Caulfield Cup. At the moment, he's definitely in, yeah?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a bit of a saga during the week. I think mainly driven by, obviously, the, the uncertainty. Um, to be fair to Kieran and David, I, I think it, was, it wasn't was sort of driven so much by them. It was just a case of they just wanted to wait and see how, how things played out. Obviously, the horse galloped on... Tuesday at Corfield um, and come out of that nice. And I think, look, it's just one of those things that I think had he not gone so well in the Turnbull, we're always running in the Corfield Cup. But then became a bit of a decision to make when he won the Turnbull, like he did. Do we go straight into a Cox Plate? So I think that was the conundrum during the week. Jamie, uh, Mark
1: Zara took the ride on without a fight. Now Mark, Mark Zara and Gull Trip, they're a pretty good combination. What do you think board, about this
2: move? I oh, look, to be fair to Mark, um, uh, Max, he was sort of committed to without a fight after the um after the Brisbane Winter Carnival. Um, and I look I think on Sunday Anthony Friedman was pushing him for a decision, and at that stage I think Kiramar had indicated that more than likely go to a Cox Plate. So like jockeys have to do, Max, you had to make a decision. Do I run the risk of sitting on the sideline or do I know I'm, I'm in the race on a, on a live chance, which without a fight is certainly a live chance. So it's disappointing to lose him. But, you know, as I always say with jockeys, they, they come and go and they jump off ours and we, we sometimes move them on. So it's the game and we all understand it. Mark, regardless if the horse runs well and we, and we go to either a Cox Plate or a Melbourne Cup, so um, Endor, uh, Mark will certainly back, be back in the saddle.
1: Jamie, goal trip was dynamic at Flemington, uh, winning the Turnbull. Just what's turned him on? Like In Sydney previously, look, he did look like the goal trip that had won the Melbourne Cup, but that spark was back. That spark was back at Flemington. What, is it that he's yeah. just a Flemington horse, which doesn't augur well for the Caulfield Cup, I know, but what's turned him on again?
2: Yeah, well look well, I guess on that, Max, he he, he ran very well at Caulfield in the Caulfield Cup last year, you remember. So um I I do agree to an extent that he's a very good horse on Flemington, um and he's he's shown that. But I, I look I really just think and to be brutally honest, I think it was as much owner agreed as anything. I think we all um, you know, coming off a of Melbourne Cup, we were all and I think the weather in Sydney was had a lot to do with it. We all felt that the forgiving ground at Randwick would have suited him in the in the autumn. But when I look back, and I've said it for a long while, not many Mel- Melbourne Cup, the first three over the line again this year, had a very poor autumns. Um, historically, I think we find the bottom Melbourne Cup day with our horses, and it's just too quick of a turnaround to get them back racing at a high level. And you know, history shows that it's normally the case. But I think we just got a little bit greedy with the horse. Um, He had well-documented issues with his feet over the Melbourne Spring, and I think he ran through pain for us. And I think, to be fair to him, we should have just given him the autumn off. But hindsight's a wonderful thing. We won't make that mistake again. There is an argument, too, Max. He he races better on the Melbourne leg. Um, He's got a bit of a funny action for anyone that's sort of looked at him closely. He does throw his um, offside front leg a bit. It's a bit of an awkward sort of... um, action that he's got and I just wonder whether he just doesn't go that Sydney leg as well but look I don't think we'll do that do that again regardless of what happens in the spring and we'll, we'll just put it down to experience.
0: Interesting you say that Jamie about his gait because I remember what something like 18 months ago when he in a, in a sense had just arrived the Victorian stewards were concerned that his at the way he moved weren't they?
2: Yeah and look I To be honest, you're always learning in this game and having brought a lot of horses down through Newmarket into Werribee, I'm starting to think it it up a little bit differently. We would sort of always thought best to do a lot of their fast gallops at at Newmarket before they get on the aircraft. Um, And then when they get to Werribee, they just do maintenance work into the Melbourne Cup or or their future Group 1 races. But that was another test taste for probably not doing that. Um, Daltrip had a really serious hit out, remembering that he'd come from France as well, so he's working on a different surface. So uh, Horses do adapt to that, and they do change their gait, and it's quite noticeable with horses when they move onto a different surface. Um, and he had a really serious hit out that just before, the last sort of gallop before he got on the aircraft, and I still to this day feel that he got off the aircraft and he was a little bit guess, stiff um, and regardless, he passed all his scintigraphy, all of his um, CT scans, but he still couldn't convince her that he was right to run. But, I mean, look, wonderful thing again, hindsight. Um, it may have been a blessing because he acclimatised and 12 months later he, he won the, the, the big race. Certainly, I think now he's, in reference to his gait, he's certainly moving
0: beautiful. Kieran Mars made the point too that while he has accepted for the Caulfield Cup, if it gets better shall we say than a good three or even at a good three you'd certainly have a look again because that might be too fast for him
2: yeah look i again Kieran and David are the trainers and I certainly don't get involved in those decisions but I'm probably not I think it's been overplayed a bit with the horse that he's a uh, uh, needs forgiving ground when we bought this horse what really appeared to us ironically was one of his runs in France and it was on very fast ground and Obviously, keeping a lot of data out of those European races for a number of years now. The form reference and the times that he ran on a fast ground indicated to us that we thought he was a genuine weightflow choice in Australia. And that's why we targeted the Cox plate that first year. And then obviously, he had the little issues with his one of his feet um, and I think that's where it come this this idea that you needed soft ground because obviously for giving ground and they get that concussion up through their, their feet into their fetlocks and I, and I just believe that now it's been a bit overplayed because if you saw the horse now the way he moves and even if you pick, pick his feet up um, the farrier's done a great job with the horse but just time again he's grown out some toe and he's got a he's got a foot that looks like any foot should look in, on a horse so uh, I'd be shocked if you know, I know they're going to get warm weather today and tomorrow in Melbourne. But if they put their 10 mil on or the 15 mil that they normally do, I just think it would be a good racing pattern. I'd be shocked if he didn't run. Jamie, your uh,
1: Australian bloodstock makes makes a considerable uh, impact on the industry. How many horses have you got now,
2: Max? We try and keep it. Our, our business model sort of has evolved over the years, and Luke and I have sort of at different points thought we could grow it to a bigger number than what it is today, but. We've just found that to keep it sustainable, remembering that every horse that we buy, we, we take a share in. So we've got to, for us, we have to make sure we're winning prize money. Otherwise, you know, the slow ones, <laughs> they hold you back and it's not sustainable. So we sort of keep it at sort of that 140 to 150 um, with a combination of trainers throughout sort of the east coast of, um, of Australia, predominantly Chris Lee's here in Newcastle. where well, we're based, would would have the majority of them. Um, with a good share with, with David and, and Kieran in Victoria. But I think that level of 150 just keeps it a, a model that, that certainly if we keep buying the right horses and, and, and winning the right races, it's it's profitable and, and sustainable. Um, but over that, we just found that, yeah, there was too many, too many leaks.
1: <laughs> How many owners are involved in your syndicates?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, our database would indicate that to be something in the four to five thousand but i've often looked at it a lot of the owners will buy a share in a horse and buy five or ten percent and i'm learning more and more when you go to the races and you meet these people that they say they're in one of our horses um they're in syndicates, so there might be a guy that takes five percent but he puts 10 of his mates in so all of those people obviously are owners as well so that number could be Anywhere from two to three times that we we don't know, but the, the fantastic thing about the Australian racing model is that it enables those sort of people to enjoy days like last Saturday, every day. Like we had we had a we didn't have any luck, but we had a number of runners, and oh, there was hundreds of owners on course, so it's fantastic. And I mean, as you know, when you travel abroad and European racing, and and particularly racing in the UK, with it, with the envy of the world, with our our participation rates, and obviously. It's certainly a lot more mainstream here in Australia than it is when you when you travel abroad. And we're very fortunate with the funding model. That obviously Peter Valandis was the instigator, and the, the flow on effect. Um, yeah, we're just I, I never lose sight of the fact that we're we're very fortunate to to be able to be racehorses here in Australia.
0: One last question though about Gold Trip. When he retires, say he, co- he you know he goes well, or he wins the Caulfield Cup, then the Cox Plate, then the Melbourne Cup. As a young stallion, how attractive is he? To the Australian market, to the you know within the Australian breeding market.
2: Yeah, look, sadly, I don't think he has any appeal. You know, having been down that road a few times with well-performed staying horses, uh, I've had that discussion with a few of the owners this week. Actually, like he's he won it, albeit the Turnbull was a set weight and penalty race. You could argue it's probably the best. Mile and a quarter race we've seen for a long while. That, that you know, with the international horse West Wind blows and and the Hong Kong horse. And if you look at the ratings of that race, you could argue that it was as good a two thousand meter race we've seen in this country for a number of years. So, from a stallion perspective, you say the way he won that race, um, you know, his time from the four hundred to the two hundred was you know, new market handicap type time. He's certainly got a devastating turn of foot, and they're the, they're the sort of stallions you want to breed to, but. Unfortunately, the game is totally gone full circle and it's even going on in the Northern Hemisphere now. Like, the horses that are well-performed um, out beyond a mile and a quarter, unfortunately, there's just no commercial appeal. So, And on the flip side to that, to keep him in training, um, you've only got to look at the next three weeks for his ownership group. Um, hopefully, and there's an opportunity for him to race for $18 million. You know, So with the Caulfield Cup, Cox Plate, the Melbourne Cup, he could never... He could never make that sort of money at studs. So unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, if you're in the ownership group, it's it's more profitable and lucrative for this horse to stay in training as opposed to retiring and standing him at stud. And you'd be lucky to I would think be lucky to attract fifty mares. It's it's just the way our game is, you know, golden slipper winners command thirty million and stand for eighty (laughs) thousand. And most of them, you know, they don't train on past their two year old season. And then, yet, you get proper horses. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, Group One Wait for Age performed horses like Gold Trip that have no commercial appeal. That's another kind of have got in our industry. I've, I've got a couple of those horses that, um, and we nearly found ourselves in that position with a horse called Top Ranked. Um, he won an Epson Handicap, and I couldn't find a home for him as stud. He was, you know, he ran third in a lock in, Group One winner here in Australia, won the Bill Ritchie at seven furlong. and None of the studs would even look at him. Thankfully, Basil Nolan um, in Queensland stood him, and he's, he's attracted really good support from breeders up there. And they you know, more so that Basil's pushing him. He's got such a good name in the industry that they're supporting Basil. I think as much as the horse. And how do you rehome a stallion? Like, that's very difficult. And and you get a well-performed stallion they're, they're not that easy. Anyone that knows thoroughbreds, you can't just park them in a paddock. Um, yeah, they're obviously they've got other things on their mind, and they can be quite a handful. So. I would, I would like to think, albeit Gulch has got a beautiful temperament for Stane, and I think that goes a long way towards why he relaxes and races the way he does. He's just got a beautiful temperament, and he's, um, for all wants and purposes, he, he's got an attitude like a gelding. But um, I'd like to think, regardless of where where he finishes up or what age he retires, that we, we can find an afterlife at a stud for him, whether it's commercial or not. I'm sure we'd be able to find somewhere to stand him.
0: Jamie Lovett, good to have you on Hoof on the Till. My pleasure. And that's where things stand for a gold trip now and what the future might hold for that young stallion. But, Max, what about the rest of the field in the Caulfield Cup on Saturday? How seriously should we take the visiting internationals like Breakup from Japan, not to mention the fact that there are only a handful of Aussie-bred runners facing the starter? Trainer Graham Begg is aiming for the Cup's double this year with Luna Flair in the Melbourne Cup on the first Tuesday in November and non conformists in the first leg of that potential cups double on Saturday, and I'm happy to say Graham joins us now. Good morning, Ah Graham.
1: I I thought you had a great chance of pulling off the Caulfield Melbourne Cup double this year. Firstly, with Conformist in the Caulfield Cup, and then you've gone and drawn 19. How big of a how big of a setback is that?
3: Oh, it's very difficult, Max, from that gate, particularly that horse. He loves to uh, have a bit of a cuddled sort of run. Um and be able to give me his opportunity. So yeah, look, he's gonna to have to take his medicine um early in the race and go back and so to speak and have to ride for luck a bit, I guess.
1: He's a seven year old, um, and an Australian bred, which is a rarity. We've been talking about gold trip European silver tail, but the breeding, how did you how did you come to get him and and he wouldn't have bought much at a yearling sale, would he?
3: No, he didn't go to sale. He's 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 a homebred. Um, and the people which bred him, they've raced him. Um, they syndicated them themselves, um, and have had a lot of enjoyment out of him. And uh, he's been very good to them over the last three or four seasons of racing. Um, and uh, you know they they really love that horse. Um, unfortunately, the mother died, and yeah, uh, and, and he's the last remaining uh, foal out of the mare. So. Uh, you know, uh, he'll be given a good home once he's retired. Well, he's a
1: seven-year-old now, but your Melbourne Cup host, Luna Flair, is an eight-year-old and obviously qualified for the Melbourne Cup, charging home in the Turnbull, a very strong Turnbull, we've led to believe, and I think certainly viewing it, a very strong Turnbull, an eight-year-old winning a Melbourne Cup, Graham?
3: Well, records are meant to be broken, Max. You should know that, Uh, but she's in great form. Uh, we always felt that, you know, by the time she was having a third run in this preparation in the Turnbull, she'd start to put a hand up. She just really relishes racing at Flemington. Um, so she runs Friday Friday week in the, in the Moonee Valley Cup and that'll be her final lead up into the Melbourne Cup.
1: Uh, you're now training at Cranbourne. Graham, how, how does Cranbourne compare with your heyday at Royal Randwick?
3: Well, Max, it's a, it's a very busy track. There's a lot of horses in training there. Um, it's only a, a training track. Uh, essentially, that's all they do. There's two parts to Cranbourne. There's the race racetrack. Uh, then they have the training centre on the other side, and, uh, and it's designated just for training only, uh, where they've got three grass tracks and uh, a very big sand track, and they've got trails out the back, so you've got that rural environment to be able to work the horses. Uh, but there's, as I said there's a lot of horse in training there uh, the weather's not that kind down down there um, it tends to rain a lot that side of town um, so yeah the tracks are always got plenty of give in them
1: just getting back to Luna Flair last year she was only a seven-year-old and she was going pretty good and uh, uh, she wasn't allowed to start what was the background of that
3: yeah, she had a, a a bit of bruising in one heel, um, and uh, the, the the vets felt that she wasn't suitable to run on the day. Unfortunately, um, we'd had a trouble-free run with her. She's never had an issue ever, um, the whole period of time I've ever trained her. And it's just one of those things. I think probably a bit of a combination of everything. You know, we had a lot of rain last year. Their feet get a bit soft. Uh, it's just bad timing, unfortunately. Uh, but look, this this year we've had a trouble-free run up to now and uh you know, hopefully everything goes according to plan is she a better eight-year-old than she was a seven-year-old i believe so um she's a more complete racehorse and the way she won the rams than early in the year as i said she really relishes flemington and she she loves a very fast run race so where she can just sit back and and just sort of switch off and give her a chance to finish a race off but look with 51 and a half on her back in the uh, in the Melbourne Cup, I'm sure that she'll give it a good shake.
0: Graham, that sounds so exciting. Looking forward to that first Tuesday in November with the Mayor. But let's concentrate again on the Caulfield Cup and nonconformist on Saturday. I mean, he's, as we touched on at the start of this interview, he's one of just four horses actually colonially bred, if we want to say that. Montefilia's by Kermadec, nonconformist, your boy, your special boy's by Rebel Racer, right, you are's by. So, you're thinking fame's by Manhattan Rain. Now, that's a small number, Graham. That's a low number.
3: Yeah, it certainly is. Look, I just think that, you know, people just, this day and age, they just want a quick return. They don't breed to, you know, to give the horses an opportunity to uh, become stayers. And it's just oriented towards the sprinting type horse. And, uh, you know that's that's the reason why but you know what if you can be patient the rewards are great
0: how do you look at the field graham what about the other runners i mean some of them are actually based in australia now so they're not internationals as such but how do you rank them this year
3: oh it's very hard to get an assessment and get a line on on you know those horses from overseas because you know to whether they've settled in well once they've arrived into australia um you know i don't know the form of the horses over there what the quality of the horses they've been racing against but You know, I know from past experience, you know, when the really good horses do come here from Japan, um, they're, you know, certainly more than competitive and, uh, you know, they've got superior stayers to us. Um, So certainly you've got to give them a lot of uh, kudos and, uh, you know, healthy respect.
0: Trainer Graham Begg talking to us on Hoof on the till. We mentioned the whirlpool being a big attraction and part of the overall Everest promotion last weekend. But what is it exactly? I know you've tried to explain it to me, but I think our next guest will probably, with you, do a better job.
1: There's no doubt that Rob Waterhouse will do a better job because when it comes to betting, all things betting, Rob is your man, a leading bookmaker. Waterhouses have been at the forefront of, of, shall we say, bookmaking for the last... 50 or 60 years, and uh, things have changed, and so has the whirlpool. And Rob, just what is the whirlpool?
4: Uh, the whirlpool's a very sensible idea, clever idea, of joining up various betting jurisdictions into one large pool. A- and on the face of it, it's, it's a really good idea. Uh, in practical terms, though, I have quite a few concerns about it. And what concerns are they, Rob? Don't leave us out. Well, look, it's only suspicions, but in different jurisdictions, uh, punters can bet much later into the pools than they are supposed to in, in Australia. Uh, for instance, in Singapore, the uh, the punting groups were able to bet 30, with impunity without 30 seconds after the race jumps. And on Saturday in the Whirlpools at Randwick, you had quite a few leaders shortened. And the cognoscenti of bettors think that there's, the punting groups are able to bet well after the races jump.
1: Rob, um, does the average punter is the average punter going to benefit from a world pool? I'm thinking about the takeout rates. Uh,
4: look, you see, uh, anyone on Saturday who's a big punter would be much better off betting into the Hong Kong world pool, betting on Australian racing, than in Australia because you can get uh, rebates of 12%, 14% straight from the Hong Kong Jockey Club. You know, it's sort of, it sounds good, but it's sort of, in practical terms, there are lots of other things happening with it.
1: Bookmaking has, uh, shall we say, taken a considerable dip since our heyday.
4: Uh, is there a future there for the on-course fielder? Uh, unfortunately, we're a 19th century business in the 21st century and i think that um the mentality of the young person doesn't extend to betting with bookmakers they rarely have any cash in their pocket and they'd much rather buy a 150 fifty dollar bottle of champagne at the races than even put a five dollar bet on the bookmaker so there are different people to in my day Certainly in my
1: day too. But, of course, uh, in our day, the Melbourne Cup was the, the biggest betting event of the year, probably still is. Now, uh, are you fielding in Melbourne this year, at Flemington?
4: I am, uh, but through circumstances, I believe it will be on the grass, which I'm disappointed at, but still I'm there.
1: But on the grass. Now, <laughs> that sounds like the equivalent of the old Randwick flat.
4: Yeah, well, it's actually in front of the the, the member stand at uh, Seven, and i write a lot of things. We're very busy but I've allowed uh, Ben Keith of Star Sports of the UK, who's coming to Australia as a visiting bookmaker, to have my rail stand. And I was hoping to have one also, but the authorities of me think it should be on the grass. So I'll be on the grass. Now, how big is this bookmaker from overseas? Ben Keith is a huge bookmaker. Uh, at Ascot this year, he was holding a, a million and a half, two million pounds a race. You know, he's a very big uh, operator. I think he might be disappointed with the betting in, in Australia. Will you feel it at, at Royal,
1: House Scott? How many bookmakers were operating?
4: Look, it, it has about a smaller crowd than the Everest Ten, but there were uh, sixty-eight on the rails in the rails area. There were one hundred and twenty-eight in the main paddock, forty-four in the ledger, and twenty-four on the flat, and they are thriving. Rob, I, why I is, wrote more tickets what? every day at Ascot than for Everest state at Sydney.
1: Well, why is Ascot thriving and Australian racing, bookmaking in Australian racing is is really
4: on the slide. I think that the, the clubs see themselves as being caterers, uh, selling uh, expensive lunches and champagne rather than being a, a place for betting. Whereas in England, still old fashioned, bookmakers are out the front and people go there to look at the horses and to have a bet. We're at the forefront of their mind. Whereas were at the back of their mind in Australia. We say we have the best racing in the world, but I prefer the racing in England because of it.
0: And where do the horses sit in race-goers' minds in Australia, Rob, particularly on a day like Everest or the Caulfield Guineas uh, in Melbourne last week? I mean, between them, I think there was something like 65, 66,000 people between the two courses.
4: Yes, there were. The issue is that people go there to party. At the Everest they had bands on after the last race, and a large number of people didn't arrive till after the last race was over. You know, I, I, whereas in England, they go there for the racing. They really enjoy the racing and they enjoy having a bet. And so it's, it's a different mindset. We advertise for people to socialise uh, and go with their friends and have a great time. In England, it's all about the horse racing, which I prefer.
1: Rob, just on a different tangent, I know apart from a bookmaking, a betting, you're a keen student of racing. I note that uh, a team in Melbourne, the Waterhouse Bot Team, have in the first five races at Caulfield on Saturday, they've got five last start winners. Now, that just strike, struck me as being somewhat unique. What do you
4: think? Sounds pretty unique to me. What well, Fancy uh, trifecta of the Breeders plate. So it wasn't a bad effort. Max, wasn't. I think that's never been done before. The
1: partnership is obviously working Um Gay seems to be spending a lot of time in Melbourne now, and I think Alligator Blood is a an example of uh, just like how her expertise coming to the fore.
4: Yes, well, look, we for the last forty years, Gay and I've spent this time of year in Melbourne, and I've commuted back to Sydney often, but she's always done that. But I think it's a the partnership is made in heaven. I listened to a very interesting podcast on a program called Free Economics about joint CEOs and it seems to be where you have the founding CEO with a smart young person they can do go gangbusters and I think it's a great combination with Gay and Adrian uh, Gay uh, organizes dictates all the work and gets reports and she's at the barriers, teaching horses to jump and that sort of thing, doing the things she likes to do and he's doing the things he has to do and it works out very well